Let me ask you a question. How many of you made a life-changing decision today? Anybody? Not afraid to admit that you made a life-changing decision? Uh, I saw a, a hand, right? Uh, unless you're like super um, motivated, unless you're super wired for achievement, most of us probably didn't get up today and say, today's, I'm, I'm gonna make a life-changing decision before I come to church today. For some of us, when we got up, we're like, hey, what am I gonna have for breakfast today? Am I gonna go with the healthier Cheerios or am I gonna go for frosted uh, something, right? Lots of sugar on it. Some of us are making a decision between what am I going to wear today? Am I going to wear this shirt or this shirt or better yet, which one is clean right now? Are y'all with me on that? Uh, most of the time when we get up, we don't think about, hey, we're going to make life-changing decisions right now. But here's the truth. We make thousands of decisions every single day. We make hundreds of decisions every single hour. And there's something that researchers call decision fatigue. I don't know if you've heard of this before. Decision fatigue, it's this idea that we make so many decisions throughout the day that the more decisions we make begin to whittle away at our willpower. And so by the end of the day, our willpower is way lower. Our determination is way lower than what it was at the beginning of the day. That's one of the reasons why so many people uh, suggest working out first thing in the morning, because even if you have good intentions, hey, I'm going to stop by the gym on the way home from work in the afternoon, even with good intentions, the longer the day goes, your intentions lower. Do you see what I'm saying? In fact, researchers uh, studied this and what they found is actually that there's a quantifiable difference with the decisions we make based on the time of day. Researchers showed that if you were to sit before the parole board, so I'm not assuming anything in this room this morning, but if you had to sit before the parole board uh, in the morning, they grant parole 70% of the time. However, if you sit before the parole board in the afternoon, that number goes from 70% down to just 10%. That after lunch, after all the decisions they've already made and the sugar crash happens and everybody's a little bit tired, the research shows that they're afraid of making the wrong decision, so they become stricter in the afternoon. So if you're up for parole, and I don't know if that's anybody, if you're up for parole, you're praying for a morning parole hearing, right? This is even true when it comes to surgery. The research shows that the mortality rate because of a surgery is exponentially higher in the afternoon than it is in the morning. That if you've got to have surgery, the, the research shows you wanna be first thing in the day because something happens. Doctors, just like anybody else, has the sugar crash in the afternoon. People don't pay as much attention. And so it's amazing some of the infections and even deaths that happen due to surgeries because of little things that were forgotten, just obvious things that were neglected. And so even that says, hey, try to get scheduled in the morning. It's decision fatigue. It's this idea that the more decisions we make, by the time the day wears on, some of you as parents know what all this is about. Some of you as parents, you know, you have a long weekend. You're like, awesome, a long weekend. And then your kid pesters you the whole weekend. They're like, can I, 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 and in the morning you're strict. In the morning you're like, no, 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 that's not what we do. And then by the end of the day, if you're not careful, you're like, whatever you wanna do is fine. Go play in traffic if you want to. Here's some matches, go light something on, right? By the end of the day, fatigue sets in and you move from making wise decisions to doing what's easy. 
This is true when it comes from health. This is true when it comes from test taking. Research shows that kids perform way better in standardized testing in the morning than in the afternoon, right? This plays out in so many arenas, but this also plays out in our moral lives. That we're gonna face a lot of decisions and we can have great intentions and we can set out to do the right thing, but if we're not careful, decision fatigue morally will cause us to shift from making decisions based on character, what does God want me to do, to convenience, what's easy right now. And so this morning, here's what I'd love for us to do. I'd love for us to look into God's word and to say, are there decisions that we can prep for? In other words, are there some decisions that every single one of us make that we can get a little head start, that we can take a peek at so that we can have a little game plan so that when we're tired, when we're hungry, or as many of us call it, hangry, anybody there? I heard y'all applaud when Zach talked about lunch, so, and he's eating right now. So, I, you know, so if you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, what are some things that you can know? What are some decisions that you can prep for so that we can make decisions based on character. So if you have your Bibles, if you have a device that has the Bible app on it, I wanna invite you to follow along. This morning, we're gonna look at an incredible passage in 1 Samuel chapter 24. So if you need to look it up or find it, that's cool. But in 1 Samuel 24, there's this unbelievable opportunity for David, who is not yet king in this passage, for David to take matters into his own hands. David's a person that has a heart after God. David's a person that's been set apart by God to be the next king of the Israel. But just like us, just like you, just like me, he has moments where he's tempted to do what's easy instead of what's right. See, here's what happens. Here's sort of the background. Uh, Before David becomes king, the king that's in charge at the moment is a guy named Saul. Saul started out okay, but by the end of his life, he had really gone off the rails. He He had lost his moral compass. He made a lot of crazy decisions. And when David was 15 years old, think about this, when David's 15 years old, he's told, you're gonna be the next king of Israel. So David knows this, he's actually anointed. There's this big ceremony that sets him apart, but between the time that David is anointed to be the next king to when he's actually appointed to sit on the throne, that gap between when he first hears about it and when it finally happens is somewhere around 20 years. Now, David's no different than you and I. David, we, we don't want to wait 20 years for something awesome to happen in our life. When, when somebody's like, hey, when would you like the big promotion to happen? Ah, oh, you can just wait 20 more years. We don't think that way. Hey, when do you want to have the new shiny thing? I'll, I'll, I'll just, no, we want it now. And so there's this gap, there's this season between when he's anointed and when he's appointed to be the king. And somewhere in the middle of that gap, King Saul gets jealous of David. In fact, David's popularity keeps growing. Actually, the ladies start writing songs about him where when David comes back from war, they would sing the song, something along the lines, Saul kills thousands, but David kills tens of thousands. I'm not sure how that rhymes or what that melody sounds like, but you get, so his popularity is growing. Saul gets really jealous. His emotions are off the chart. And so for many chapters in 1 Samuel, he tries to track David down to kill him to get rid of him, to wipe him out. And so in 1 Samuel 24, David is on the run. Saul and his army is trying to track him down. Saul and 3,000 soldiers are trying to find him. And so in 1 Samuel 24, David and David's men hide in a cave in En Gedi. 
Now this isn't like a Flintstones cartoon version of a cave. This is a cave that has deep crevices all the way back. And so David and his men are hiding because they hear the army is near. And it's in this moment that David has to decide what to do. This is an unbelievable passage of scripture. If you have your Bibles, look at it. Here's what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Look at verse three, it says, and at that place where the road passes from the sheepfold. So the story's being told, it's like, oh yeah, of course I know that. This is sort of a Southern Bible passage. I grew up in Mississippi, so whenever people ask for direction, it's like, yeah, just go to where the barbed wire fence has the, you know, has the limb hanging over, right? And that's sort of verse three. Hey, go to where the road passes some sheepfolds. And Saul, who's the evil king, who's trying to track David down, verse three, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. Some of you are like me. I, when I was studying this this week, I had a sort of a middle school boy moment. Have you ever had that? I'm not, I'm not a super demonstrative laugh, laugher. I'm more of a, I think it in my head. I'm like, oh, that's funny. And then if something happens, you know, uh, have you ever been in one of those moments where uh, you're not supposed to laugh, but you want to laugh? Has that ever happened to you? A couple years ago, our staff went up to a funeral in Ella J and uh, we're sitting in this funeral. It was an uh, in- interesting <laughs> funeral. And we're sitting in this funeral and r- one row behind me is uh, Pastor Chuck and Miss Jenny. And uh, Jenny has her phone on silence, but uh, somewhere along the way, opens her phone, clicks some button and it starts talking. The GPS starts talking and 300 feet, hang it right. <laughs> and I'm on this rickety wooden pew that's not bolted down and I start snickering and I'm trying to hold it in and my shoulders start going up and down. The whole pew starts rocking, right? And it was the death of me. This is one of those moments, this is one of those passages. I'm like, he did what? Verse three, he went to relieve himself. I know we've got some great shirts out at Sugar Hill Resources. He left the 99 for the one. I think this would be a fascinating shirt. It's scripture, it's scripture. So he goes into the cave and he's in this vulnerable moment and the cave that he goes into is the same cave that David and his men are in. Unbelievable. In this moment, David gets to decide, am I gonna do what's convenient? Am I gonna do what's easy? Or am I gonna do what's right? And I'm telling you, as funny as that is, we are all going to be faced with situations we have to make decisions. So what I wanna do is I wanna give you what I think are the four common decisions that all of us have faced, no matter if you're uh, single or married, whether you're young or you're old, whether you're working, if you're retired, whether you feel like this is for you or not, there are four decisions I wanna prep you for. And in each one of these decisions, remind you of the right thing, remind you, not telling you exactly what to do, but what is the principle that's based on character so that when your energy's low, so that when you're thinking about lunch, as soon as I say amen, so that when you're, uh, uh, so that when, you, when you're at that moment where you've got decision fatigue, you've got something to look to. And here's the first one, first decision. If you're a note taker, I invite you to write these down or you can follow along in the app. But decision number one is what I call the availability decision, the availability decision. 
In verse three, Saul wanders into this cave and it's the same cave that David and his men are hiding in. And so it says in verse four, David's men pipe up. David's men, their jaw drops. David's men realize, hey, here's the enemy. Here's the guy that's trying to track our King David down. And in that moment, here's what they say in verse four. Now's your opportunity. Now's your chance. It says David's men whispered to him, today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward, he cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. In this moment, David's men chime in. David, this is your chance. David, this is your opportunity. David, this guy's been trying to kill you. He's been trying to track you down. Now God has brought him into the same cave. Now he's in this awkward position. And now in this moment, you should kill him. See, we're gonna have these moments. Maybe it's not as extreme as Saul, but we're gonna have moments where we get to decide what's the right thing to do. What's the godly thing to do? What is it that God desires for me to do? And if we're not careful, here's what'll happen will equate opportunity with an open door. Does that make sense? Sometimes we, we say these cliches, whenever God closes the door, he opens the window, right? all, all that kind of, and if we're not careful, we'll read into every opportunity, or as I'd call it here, an availability decision. Hey, if it's available, if it's an option, if it's something I can do, if it's something I can get away with, we'll assume that opportunity equals an open door, but opportunities are not mandates by God. Opportunities aren't necessarily marching orders from God. Here's the principle if you want to write this down. The principle of the availability decision is this. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because you can do something does not necessarily mean that you should do something. Just because you can cheat your work doesn't mean you should. Just because you can overinflate your numbers doesn't mean that you should. Just because you can flirt with that person doesn't mean you should. See, you, you can apply this across the board that opportunity isn't necessarily an open door. Not everything that you could do is something that you should do. Are y'all tracking with me? This could be in major areas of our life. This could be in simple areas of our life. Since we've already been talking about food this morning, let me just sort of ramp up your appetite even more. So here, here's, here's a silly example of this principle. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. A couple of weeks ago was my birthday. And so on my birthday, so I've been, uh, I turned 40 uh, back on September 25th. And so I had this internal goal of when I turned 40, here's sort of where I want to be health-wise. I want to have plenty of energy. I want to da-da-da, right? All of this stuff. But then on your birthday, you give yourself every reason to cheat. And so I went to lunch with some of the guys uh, from the church here, went to lunch, one of my favorite places, Lolita's for Mexican food. Can I get an amen on Mexican food? And so somebody, yes, we're about to have revival breakout. So somebody orders queso and I'm like, ah, I shouldn't have queso. They're like, but it's your birthday. I'm so, okay, okay, okay. I, I can do it. Uh, you know, it's my birthday. So I'll just have three or four chips. Not a big deal, not a big deal, not a big deal. But once you put salt on the chips and then once you dip them in queso, it's like game over. So like two baskets later, I'm still chowing down on them. Like, can we get a refill on those, right? And then about halfway through the meal, unbeknownst to me, my wife, Laura, sneaks in 
into the restaurant, she had been creeping on my calendar, saw that I had a lunch meeting, saw where it was, and so she shows up with cupcakes and ice cream. It's like, let me pray about it. Yes, amen. And so I had cupcakes and ice cream after having queso and four tacos. And then I get back to work from lunch and I walk in and part of the team comes into my office and they sing happy birthday. And one of our team members baked me a dozen, a dozen homemade salted caramel cupcakes. Well, she went through all this work. I better have at least one of them, right? So I have one of those and then I get finished with that one. I'm like, well, you can't stop with just one. You gotta make sure they're all consistently good. So I had a second one. One of my teammates saw me about to have a sugar crash. And so she brought me a cup of coffee preemptively so I could have that, right? So, so here I am, queso, three cupcakes into the day. And then I get home and Laura takes me to some swanky restaurant down the road. And as part of the swanky restaurant, they got these massive sides. And it's like, well, it's your birthday. So you ought to have a splurge. So I ordered onion rings. I didn't know when the onion rings came out that it was gonna be a plate the size of my head of onion rings. So. It's my birthday, so I ate all of them, right? And then at the end of the meal, they bring out this giant seven-layer cake. And so I was like, well, they brought out the cake. I got to have at least some of that cake. And then I got home. And when I got home, I was like, well, my cheating's got to end by midnight. I don't want to take it into the next day, so I better have at least one more of those cupcakes. (laughs) And that one more led to two more (laughs) of those cupcakes. (laughs) Just because you can does not mean you should. That next day, I felt like I'd been run over. My heart was beating a little slower. My Apple Watch was like, heart alert, heart alert, heart, right? (laughs) I know that's silly, but just because you can doesn't mean you should. Some of you are flirting with opportunities that just because it's an option doesn't mean that it's an open door. It could be a relationship outside of your marriage. It could be even a job promotion. I can't tell you how many guys I talk to that make decisions based on an opportunity to move up the ladder and they end up when they're saying yes to one thing, that means that you have to say no to other things, including sometimes time with your family, no to work-life integration, and no to a lot of, and they end up pinning themselves into a lifestyle based on an uh, income that they said yes to that they wish they could back up. Does this make sense? So this applies across. So number one is what I call the availability decision. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. The second decision that I want you to write down that I want us to think about is this option, this idea of thinking about not just availability, but agreement, the agreement decision. Here's what I mean by the agreement decision. If you were to take a poll in the cave that day, how many of you think David ought to take this opportunity into his own hands and kill Saul, the guy that's been trying to track him down? I'm pretty sure every hand would have gone up in the cave that day. In fact, here's what it says in verse three, that when he came into the cave, verse four, all of David's men say, this is your opportunity. This is your chance. Verse four, today, the Lord is telling you, I will put your enemy into your power. You can do as you wish. So David crept forward. He cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. Everybody's like, David, you should do it. This is what I call the agreement decision. Everybody around you says, hey, you should do it. It makes sense. It works out on paper. Everybody else does it. But here's the principle. If you want to write down the principle for decision number two, the principle is this. Just because everybody says it's okay, does that mean that it's okay? Just because everybody says, well, everybody says I should take this job. Everybody says it's okay if your marriage isn't going well to start looking 
Everybody else says it's right, whatever that scenario is. I mean, I, I, there's no way I could apply it to this many of us in the room or even those that are watching online. The principle behind this is just because everybody says it's okay does not necessarily mean it's okay. It's sort of like your grandmother told you when you're a kid, if everybody jumps off a bridge, are you gonna jump off a bridge as well? My response is no, but I'd video it, post it on YouTube and get a million hits on it. That would be awesome. Just because everybody says it's okay. Sometimes the crowd is wrong, especially if you stack the deck with people that only agree with you. Remember, it was the crowd that voted to crucify Jesus. The crowd isn't always right. You've got to have the right influence in your life. And I would just, just as a side note, I would say this, if you're wrestling with one of those things, you're trying to figure out what's, what's the right thing to do. Here's, here's a couple ways to do that. Obviously God's word. We talk about that a lot around here. That's why we do everything based out of God's word. We're not just making the stuff up. We're like, what does God say? God's already given us his guidebook for life. So one way to know what God's will is, A, what does his word say? B, what do other people that are pursuing Christ around me think? That's why I love small groups. I mean, that's why we make a big deal about small groups. It's an opportunity to be in a relationship with other people that are on the same path as you. They haven't arrived. None of us have it all figured out, but at least we're leaning in, pursuing the same direction. And so even this last, uh, this last Wednesday night, I lead a group. And then on Thursday night, I attend a group that's online. I mean, it's just a 30 minute online virtual call, remote call uh, with a handful of guys. It started with three or four guys. It's now 12 to 18 every single week. And man, every time I've been on that call, I've walked away a better man, a better husband, a better follower of Christ because I have other guys speaking into my life. So A, what does God's word say? B, what do the other believers, godly people in my life say? And then C, do I have a peace about it in my spirit? If Christ lives inside of me, then I'm either gonna have peace or I'm gonna have hesitation. These are big decisions. Decision fatigue causes us to make bad decisions. A, there's the availability decision. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. B, secondly, there's the, the agreement decision. Just because everybody says it's okay doesn't necessarily mean it's okay. The third decision is this. This is what I call the authority decision, the authority decision. Listen to what happens. So David in verse four creeps forward and cuts off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. Now, I gotta tell you, sometimes when we read verses like this, we don't get the impact of it. We're like, all right, what's the big deal? Saul had a robe, that's kind of weird. Not, I don't see anybody else wearing robes today. And uh, last I checked, I didn't see any robes in here. Uh, Zach wasn't wearing a robe earlier. Not, I mean, we're not robe wearing people. There's not the worship leader robe that's like the skinny cut with the deep V and all that, right? Sorry, that was bad, that was bad. Just for you, Zach, since you talked about food all morning. Like, what's the big deal about robes? So as I was thinking about it, robes in this day, in the ancient Near East, carried a lot of significance. It showed position, it showed power, it showed rank. Whenever somebody was anointed to be king, whatever that garment they were given was like this physical picture of the anointing of God. Now, this isn't a perfect example of it, but I, I was reading about it this week, reminded me of the days when I was in the military. So when I was in high school, I joined the, the Air National Guard, part of the Air Force. So right after I graduated high school, went off to basic training in San Antonio, Texas, which during the summer is awesome. Not really. <laughs> Feels like you're standing on the surface of the sun. But when I, when I entered, it was, a, it was a pretty interesting season to be in the military because I grew up around it. My dad was in the military for 37 years. So I grew up going on base and 
you know, when an officer walked in the room, you stood, you snapped to attention, saluted, all this kind of stuff. Uh, when I entered in, there's the shift of where young folks didn't really, um, I just made myself sound really old by saying young folk. <laughs> Us younger folks didn't uh, uh, look up to authority in the same way. And so there's this tension, but in the military, so this is my, one of my last uniforms I was in for seven years. And so on, on the sleeve are the stripes and each stripe represents what my position was in the military. And so I, as, when I got out, I was a, a staff sergeant. So you could tell that by the stripes on my shoulder. My dad was a senior master sergeant. So he had a bunch more stripes or if somebody was an officer. Oftentimes if they were in their dress uniforms, you'd look on their shoulders or if they're wearing this uh, version of the uniform, it'd be right here on the ends of the collar. And so these things represented authority. These things represented position. These things represented the influence somebody had. And so if you wanted to disrespect them, you could rip this off. If you wanted to disrespect them, you could take it off their collar. This is in some ways a way of showing the significance of this robe that Saul was wearing. This robe represented his position. This robe represented his power. It represented who he was. Was. And so at first, David's like, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go up and I'm going to cut the edge of his robe, almost as a way of saying your kingdom's gone. You're no longer the guy. You're an evil guy. But then shortly after David cuts it off, it says down in verse five, but then David's conscience began to bother him. Do you see that? David's conscience began to bother him. Why? Because he had cut Saul's robe. Here's the principle that goes with this point. When it comes to authority, here's the principle. To do the right thing in the wrong way is still wrong. It, it's easy to justify situational ethics in this moment. Saul's a bad king. Saul wants to murder me. Saul has it coming to him. So I'd be justified to get rid of him. I'm gonna be the king anyway, so why not go ahead and become the king today? Situational ethics, um, decision fatigue says, take matters into your own hand. But David in this moment recognizes that until God takes Saul off the throne, it's not time for David to step onto the throne. Instead of ripping it away from Saul by taking advantage of this moment in the cave, David's like, I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna respect his authority. It doesn't mean I'm gonna like him, but I'm gonna respect his authority because here's what David knew. To be somebody in authority meant that you had to be somebody that was willing to be under authority. That all the great leaders that we look up to are people that are not just an authority, barking out orders, saying how it's gonna be. The greatest leaders that you and I look up to are people that are not just in authority, but they're under authority. And you see this throughout scripture, authority is a big deal. And so in this passage, David wrestles with this authority decision. Am I gonna respect the authority that's over me? Am I gonna work in the system that I'm in? Or am I gonna take matters into my own hands? Which leads us to the last decision, decision number four. This is what I call the anchor decision. The anchor decision is this, what am I gonna anchor my decisions to? What am I gonna anchor my response to? Am I gonna anchor my response to how I feel in the moment? Here's what we know, our feelings are real, but they're not always right. Am I gonna anchor my decisions based on what everybody else says? Am I gonna anchor my decision based on, am I close to going to Lola's and having some cheese dip right now? Anybody hungry right now? A little bit? You wanna get a Lola's? 
Let's do it. What are you going to anchor your decisions to? For David, he anchored them to righteousness. To righteousness. Righteousness is just a big, long word that means do what's right. And when you do what's right, I'm not talking about some sliding scale of what's right, but to say, God, I want to do what's right. God, as you define right. God, what do you say is right in this moment? God, what's your word point to? God, I want to do what's right as you define right, regardless of what it costs me. Even if it means I'm overlooked for this next promotion. Even if it means uh, I feel like somebody's uh, gotten their way longer than I, uh, whatever that may be. See, in our mind, we want to take matters into our own hands. We want to rip it out and we want it in our own hands. But in this situation, David wrestles with it. He starts by cutting the edge of his robe, I think. And then he wrestles with, but he's still in authority. He's still in charge. This is God's problem, not just my problem. This is God's situation, not just my situation. And because he anchored his decision in righteousness, he got to see God results. Here's the principle underneath that last decision. When you do it God's way, you get righteous results. When you handle your decision God's way, when you say, God, I want to do what's right as you define right, you get righteous results. Here's what I found. God is preparing you. God is shaping you. None of us have arrived. He's not done with any single one of us. And what often happens is that God prepares us in private before he promotes us in public. God works on the inside of us first. For David, it was 20 years between anointed and appointed. For Moses, it was 40 years between when he left Egypt and when he came back as God's deliverer. For even the apostle Paul, he disappeared from the scene for years as God built into him. God often prepares us in private first before promoting us in public. And because David ends up doing this God's way, here's the results. A, he still gets to be king. He gets to be king. He doesn't lose his opportunity. He still gets to become king, but he gets it in God's timing. Instead of, of initiating it himself, he's installed by God himself. He, A, he gets to be king, and then B, he gets to have peace in his heart. He gets to go to bed at night knowing that he's done what God wants him to do. I think we underestimate that. I think when you think about all the things that we worry about, all the things we're anxious about, all the things that keep us awake at night, there's something really, really valuable about resting your head on your pillow at night and going to sleep knowing maybe everything didn't go the way that I wanted it to. Maybe the circumstance I'm facing is messier than, but at least I did what only I could do. I did what was right in this moment. Every single one of us we're gonna have unexpected opportunities. We're gonna have undetected weaknesses. We're gonna have a lot of different gray area decisions around us. So while we've got opportunity today, let's prepare for it. Let's get our heads and our hearts wrapped around what are the principles of God's word? Opportunity is not necessarily an open door. 
Everybody's agreement doesn't necessarily mean it's a green light. I don't need to uh, take matters into my own hands. I'm gonna, as best as I can, do what God says is right. And I'm gonna trust him with the results. Would you bow your heads for a moment? I'd love to be able to pray for us today. And as we pray, I'd, if you'd help me, I'd love to pray for you specifically. Is there anybody this morning that would say, Bobby, as you pray, pray for me, because honestly, I've got some decisions going on. Maybe you're right in the middle of some things. You're already walking down a path that doesn't seem like the right thing to do. Or maybe there's something upcoming. Maybe it's not as big as the saw issue. Maybe it's something that seems smaller, but to you, man, it's huge. If that's you and you just say, Bobby, pray for me, I'd love to, to sense what God wants me to do in this moment. I'd love his direction and discernment. If that's you and you allow me to pray for you, would you slip your hands straight up in the air, straight up in the air, just as a way of saying, hey, pray for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody else, you just say, hey, I, I need God's wisdom. I need God's direction. Yeah. Yeah. If that's you, would you pray this part of the prayer with me? You don't have to pray it out loud. It could be in your head, in your heart. But just this prayer of anchoring to what God wants us to do. Dear Jesus, you saw our hands, but you know our hearts. And God, I'm wrestling with this decision. Just tell them what it is in your own words. It doesn't have to be eloquent. Just tell them what that thing is. God, this is what I'm wrestling with. This is what I'm going through. And would you just pray this part of the prayer? Would you give me wisdom? to know what the right thing to do is. God, would you use your word? Would you use godly people? Would you use your Holy Spirit living inside of me to help me discern what's right? And then give me the courage to do it. Just pray that. But as we continue to pray, if you're new to this whole idea of God living inside of you, could you try to apply these principles on your own? Absolutely, you could try. But here's what I found that leaves you honestly frustrated. Because the best way I know how to live this out, and it doesn't guarantee perfect any, by any stretch of the means, but the best way I know this to work out is to surrender our lives to Jesus himself. Because if you're looking for, who's a picture of living this out? Who's a picture of modeling this? It's God himself in the form of Jesus. When Jesus came to this earth, if there's anybody that could have said, hey, I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. These people are mocking me. They're abusing me. They're totally missing. If anybody deserved to just do what he wanted to, it's Jesus. But instead, when Jesus was on this earth, he said, I am here to do the will of my father. I'm willing to be misunderstood. I'm willing to be beaten. I'm even willing to go to the cross. And he died on the cross for my sins, your sins, the sins of the entire world. And then three days later came back to life with resurrection life, able to give any one of us in this room, watching online, listening months or years later, able to give us a brand new start. If that's never happened for you, your heart's beating in your chest like, man, I want to do that. I believe that. I need to do that. Would you pray this part of the prayer with me again in your head, in your heart? It's not the words that make the difference. It's really what we believe in our heart. But you pray something like this, dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner 
and that my sin separates me from you. But I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe you're alive today. And as best as I know how, I ask you to forgive me of my sins and save me. Help me to live for you. If you prayed either of those prayers with me this morning, I'd love to know that you could do that. You could write that on one of the info cards, prayer cards in front of you and give it to an usher. Um, you could drop me an email, bobby at sugarhillchurch.com, bobby at sugarhillchurch.com. I've got some resources I'd love to encourage you with this week as you take those next steps. Heavenly Father, thank you that you don't leave us here to try to figure it out ourselves. Thank you for placing your spirit and your word in our lives and godly people. Would you help us not to grow weary in doing what's right, but help us to make character-based decisions on your presence living inside of us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before we leave and head over to Lola's, I'd love to invite you to stand with us. And man, before you scoot out, I'm going to ask Zach just to lead us for a moment longer and allow these words to help us to engage with this truth and ask God, God, would you work inside of us? Let's sing this out before we head out today. My heart and my soul, I give you control. Consume me from the inside out, Lord. Let justice and praise become my embrace to love you from the inside. Everlasting, your light will shine when all else fades. Never us today. Thank you for singing with us. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.